Before we begin, we'd like to take the time to acknowledge that wherever we are currently located on Turtle Island, otherwise known as North America, we are on occupied territory. Art New York's membership in the five boroughs of New York City operates on the unceded ancestral land of the Lenape, Wappinger, Canarsie, Rockaway, and Matinecock communities. We want to honor and celebrate all of these indigenous communities, their elders past and present, as well as future generations. We also want to take this time to acknowledge that after there was stolen land, there were stolen people. We want to honor the generations of displaced and enslaved people that built and continue to build the country that we occupy today. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to our very first episode of What's Off, the podcast where we shine the spotlight on off-Broadway innovation. Each new episode will feature interviews with trailblazing artists, administrators, service providers, and other theater workers in the off and off-off-Broadway community. Our guests will tell us about a time they realized something was off, but don't let that title fool you. We're not here to dwell on problems. We're here to take a deep dive into the solutions that will have a lasting impact on our field. We're thrilled that you're joining us, and we can't wait for you to hear from our dynamic lineup. So let's get to it. Hi, I'm Ashley J. Hicks, AKA Ash. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a black woman with albinism. I'm an actor, writer, teaching artist, and advocate. I'm also a programs coordinator with Art New York. And I'm your other host, Nikki Maggio. I'm a programs coordinator with Art New York and also a freelance theater artist with a focus on new play development. My pronouns are N, they, and them. I'm trans and some would call me plus size, but I like to say I'm plus fabulous. Ashley, it's our first episode. So who is our first guest? Our guests today are a group of theater makers who first realized something was off 50 years ago when the restrictive nature of the field limited the amount of funding, resources, and visibility for off and off off Broadway artists. This group set out to fill in some of those gaps and thus UBA or the Off Off Broadway Alliance was formed. UBA is now known as the Alliance of Resident Theaters New York or Art New York and we just celebrated our 50th anniversary with a blowout house party at our theaters this past June. So it's only fitting that for our first episode, Audrey Rush, our Art New York colleague, sat down to talk with Robert Moss, Stephen Facey, and Barnett Kelman, three of UBA's founding members, about how they got involved, the challenges they faced, and the lasting impact that work has had on their lives and on our field. Throughout this episode, you'll hear from Audrey about Art New York's ongoing innovation and impact within the off and off-off-Broadway community today. So let's turn the spotlight on Bob, Stephen, Barnett, and Audrey, and be sure to stick around after the interview where we'll ask Audrey to unpack some of the pearls of wisdom you're about to hear. Enjoy. Hi there, this is Audrey Rush. I'm the Senior Manager of Individual Giving and Special Events at Art New York. 
For 50 years, Art New York has championed a just and thriving theatrical field. We've done it through community building, education, subsidized space, and direct funding for New York's nonprofit theater makers. We empower our community to define their own vision for success, and we always keep an eye out for what's next. But how did Art New York get to be the organization that it is today? I have three of UBA's founding members here to tell us just that. Now, first and foremost, can I have everyone go around and introduce themselves? Well, hello, everybody. I'm Barnett Kelman, and currently I am the Robin Williams Chair in Comedy at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, where I teach directing and co-direct a program called USC Comedy, which is a program in teaching uh, all aspects of comedy production. Amazing. Bob, do you want to go ahead? My name is Bob Moss. In 2008, I stepped down from running Syracuse Stage, and I've been teaching since then at Nazareth College. Hi, I'm uh, Stephen Facey. I'm now retired for almost nine years from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, where I was the executive vice president, and I'm involved in two arts and two preservation boards. It's like working. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to wind down. Bob, you are one of the original founders and executive leaders of UBA, yes? I, I would say I was. The, I, I, I joined two or three meetings later, but then once I joined, I was like noisy and pushy and <laughs> provocative, and then I became, Barry and I sort of ran it for a couple of years. That's Barry Grove. Yeah. Steve, when were you introduced to UBA? We were sort of eight years into Genesis, and I think we knew it was being formed. Um, it was interesting seeing the names on that because we have done this collaboration with uh, Theater 5, which had come from San Diego and was working with Murray Mednick. And I think we joined out of, you know, we had experience. And I, was, I don't remember myself attending meetings, Leroy may have, and some others from the theater, but, but we were, you know, we just felt it was important to be part of that body at the time. Barnett, I want to ask you the same. How were you first introduced to UBA? There was, there's, two, there's a couple of possibilities. Bob actually not only gave me the opportunity to direct, but he actually housed uh, a little co an ensemble company that I was running called Quarry, Quarry Theater. Quarry, yeah. I, I, I have it in my date book when I went to a Quarry meeting. And we did two productions. And so whether I somehow wound up joining because of this Quarry Theater Corps, I always thought maybe Bob sent me that, as a, as a delegate for uh, for playwrights. The other possibility is that Lynn Meadow sent me representing the Manhattan Theater Club. I want to get a little bit more context before we get into the what was off about that time, what needed to change, which equity was a big part of that, and what led to the founding of UBA. But for folks to get really an idea of what was so exciting about Off-Off-Broadway at the time, uh, you've mentioned Sam Shepard was one of the playwrights that Theater Genesis worked with. Actually, what put Sam on the map when his first plays, Cowboy and Rock Garden, were done, I think Jerry Talmer had moved on from The Voice to the, the Post or something and gave it kind of a very mixed review. And then Michael Smith at The Voice, and Barnett, you would remember, Michael wrote this great review that said, you know, all these small theaters are starting up and they're all hoping to find a really brilliant new playwright. And I think Theater Genesis has found one. Uh -huh. And that's what kind of put, and then successively, Michael eventually became a board member of Genesis and a playwright there after he left The Voice many years later. But that was a real, that, that kind of really put Genesis on the map at that time. I've always been assuming that The Voice was the 
vehicle that coined the term off-off-Broadway. Is that true? Would you say that's true, Yes, that's that's true. And they were the only thing in town that was reviewing these shows. That's right, yes. And it was this way in New Haven and elsewhere. Basically, you needed to be an equity production to get a review in a a major newspaper. And The Voice, I think, broke that. You know, that's just the way it was in those days. You needed to be an equity production to get reviewed. Why was that? Because they defined professionalism by membership in Actors' Equity. And, And it wasn't just about reviews, but my recollection was part of the issue was that equity actors were not really allowed to appear with non-equity actors. The point is that equity actors were violating the union's restriction on that in order to get get the chance to work. And the problem kind of was, you know, you joined equity and then and then you couldn't work at these little theaters. So they were ignoring it and eventually equity had to deal with it. What was the tension between equity and the off-off-Broadway community. If you could say three main points that were making it difficult to be an off-off-Broadway producer, director, actor. I'm going to be the counterpoint here. Yeah. I agree with that. But uh, Genesis, we always paid everyone. We were funded first through a very odd sociological study the new school was doing by the federal government. For two years, we were one of the five theaters, along with Chelsea Theater Center, La Mama, Genesis, I forget the other two, who, um, when Mac Lowry was creating the arts program at the Ford Foundation, we got funded. And right from the beginning, we paid our actors and our playwrights. So we got called to Equity's office. And I think the person I remember there who was in charge of our conversation was somebody named Vincent Donahue. And when we told him, we told him that we were paying people, I thought he was going to fall off his chair. And so we ended up with a letter agreement allowing us to do four weeks of rehearsal, four weeks of performance, because we were paying everybody. It wasn't a lot of money. It was about, you know, maybe in today's terms, it's, it was like $60 a week. And we played double the playwrights fee because they obviously worked longer. Um, but we had this letter agreement that we lived on through the life of Genesis. And that, and that is, and that's what was driving the conversation nationally. Those few theaters that were the quote unquote original off off Broadway theaters, they were the ones that the foundations had identified and there wasn't really money for everybody else. It's that everyone else pool that Barnett is talking about that Art New York serves today. We provide funding through our grant and re-granting programs for theaters of all sizes. NYC's fund for small theaters is provided by us in partnership with the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Niska Creative Opportunity Fund, Bel Geddes Design Enhancement Fund, and microgrants for accessibility and anti-oppression work. A lot of places didn't have the funding or the institutional support to keep up with. When I was at the Playwrights Unit, no one got paid excepting me because I was the executive director and I was running the place and I was there all day and all night, seven days a week, and that was how I liked to do it. So I was fine with that, but the actors didn't get paid. When I moved to the Y and I started what became Playwrights Horizons, there was no money to pay anybody and I didn't get paid. But in 71 to 72, that fiscal year, Rockefeller, who was the governor, doubled the arts appropriation to, from 18 million to 36 million. Imagine that happening today. Yes, Bob, I can't imagine if that happened today. It would be incredible. 
Members of our staff uh, currently work in close collaboration with groups such as New Yorkers for Culture and the Arts, the Indie Theater Fund, Dance NYC, and many others to advocate on behalf of the entire arts and culture sector in our city and state. We regularly engage with members of the city council and state assembly to ensure that our field receives the vital funding it needs. Funding that ultimately enriches the lives of all New Yorkers. And I would go in once a month or call Ellen Rudolph. She was my contact at NISCA. I believed at that time, this is going to sound incredibly naive, but I believed that nobody should be paid. I thought this arena is a special kind of place where people come when they're not working to do whatever. Um, and Ellen said to me, very casually, don't you think it's time you started paying people? And it was like the ceiling, the sky opened up. And I realized that as a producer, that's what I should do, find money for artists. Which is exactly why Art New York continues to be a bridge between funders and off-off-Broadway theater companies. Being paid and pay equity are still very real issues in our field today. That's why the Creative Opportunity Fund has a goal of explicitly helping theaters pay people. With the exception of Theater Genesis, those five companies that receive support from um, Ford Foundation, is it generally true that folks performing or creating within off-off-Broadway had to do it not as a vocation because it was unpaid at the time, by majority. Well, you you did shows in between jobs. The other thing I think you, it's worth saying here is that this was def definitely a period when people were saying Broadway is nearly dead. And there were no American plays and no straight plays virtually, not 100%, obviously, but Basically, most of the stuff that was happening on Broadway were imports from London or musicals. While there's certainly plenty of shows on Broadway that may have transferred from London, the majority of what goes up does come from off-off-Broadway, including the musicals. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, Hamilton, The Band's Visit, Town, and this year, Kimberly Akimbo. So many of these shows started with Uba now Art New York member companies. So the people didn't have places to work. You couldn't keep anything like full employment on Broadway. You had to figure out how to, where, where you were going to live, what your day job was going to be, et cetera, et cetera, if you wanted to pursue it. That, everybody knew that. You had to figure out what your, what your means of support would be. If we could go into the equity of, of what was the main issue that you were coming up against working with Equity as an off-off-Broadway producing company? We were very fortunate. I mean, we had lots of uh, Equity and non-Equity actors working on these in these productions. And I, I think that Equity reached out to us, Vincent Donahue, he agreed to a letter of agreement that, that allowing us to do what we were doing with a extended rehearsal and performance for four weeks of rehearsal four weeks of performance. So that was a good relationship. And going into relationships and negotiations, I was going to say, Bob, you were a big part of the conversations between Uba and Equity at the time. Vinnie Donahue was a genius. He and I were like parents, and the rest of the committee was like we were fighting over 25 cents or 30 cents. And one of the things that Vinnie did that was great was however you wanted to work it, he tried to help you mm -hmm. without without going really through the committee, because the committee was always, this is the way we do it. But he would let you, 
So some, there were groups that only wanted to have one equity actor, fine. And then maybe that person would get paid, but no one else would. There were so many different ways, and he let people do it their own ways. That if the actors want to do it, that's more important than anything. But, but Vinny let everybody do their own thing in the early years. And that was genius on his part. When did things change to the point where you didn't have to depend on a Vinny to make exceptions for folks? And when did you start to see those changes to showcase codes? Way later on, 1975, 70, well, 75 was the big, the big battle between Uba and equity. Let's get into the battle. It's worth saying the context of the time. I'll go back to what I was saying before, which was that the Broadway theaters as a whole were hurting. The theater district was becoming more and more rundown. Crime was high. People weren't going there at all. And 42nd Street was considered the worst of it, even in the theater district, because it was all porn houses, porn movie houses. And then where, where Theater Row is now was, you know, even more falling off the earth. And, of course, Penn Station had been knocked down and replaced. And people hated that. And then they went after Grand Central. So the thing was, people were watching New York either collapse, and including the theater, which is a major part of, you know, cultural life in New York, except for the country wasn't viewing it that way. And the theater at this time was being supported almost entirely, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, Bob and Steve, but almost entirely by the New York community. It wasn't the tourist attraction from out of town that it is now. And people weren't coming into the theater, into, into, into uh, Times Square, into Midtown, because it, it was terrible. A stark contrast from Midtown today, where you really can't keep people away. It's the primary draw in Manhattan for most tourists, and there's good reason. It's where the theater is. It's where the bright lights are. It's where the best restaurants are. Well, depending on who you're talking to. But how did it get to be that way? Well, Uba. Okay, so that here's what happened. Somewhere in the summer of 1975, Equity, re- the Showcase Code Committee, rewrote the Showcase Code so that it would effectively close all the theaters. There were all kinds of clauses in it. Uh, future rights from the playwrights, which dramatist guild would never have allowed. Um, you had to give every actor a subway token for every day they were there, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for some little, th- wouldn't have affected. We were paying more than that already, so we were not involved in that. But I was fighting for the field, and it made me crazy because I thought the minute I left. I I turned my back on it. They did something that they would never have been able to do if I'd been sitting there. And they were this document meant that every, anybody that wanted any kind, what did they call it? There was a word they used, uh, an exemption, but it's not okay. an exemption, some other word. Um, anyway, uh, you could ask for it. But Vinnie Donahue had passed away, and there were over 200 theaters at this point working off off Broadway because there was all of this money. Remember I said Rockefeller doubled the arts? So there were like amazing number of little tiny organizations doing work. And that trend of funding has only continued. Via our re-granting programs and the advocacy work that Art New York does to make sure that these small companies get the dollars they need to do the work they do, Today, we have over 450 active organizational members. That's not even including the individual members that we have. 
but I was furious. And that made me a really good public speaker because I could, I was just so outraged. So we began having Uber meetings and Uber was the vessel that led this charge, right? So we decided we would have a public hearing one night and we chose a Monday night like 11 o'clock at night, so Broadway actors could come. And we went to Joe, Pap, and said, Joe, he loved to fight. And he, Joe always loved a good fight. So Joe, we said, Joe, would you give us the Newman for a meeting? And we explained the whole thing. He was like, bring it on. And I said, maybe we should take a smaller theater in case nobody shows up and it'll look better. 1,200 people showed up. The Newman sat 300, so there were, they, Joe immediately had speakers put out in the lobby and then eventually out in the street. And, and the board of Uba sat on the stage, and anybody, that, anybody could be at this meeting. We didn't, you know, take attendance, but it was packed. And people were yelling and screaming, mostly in favor of the old showcase code, the existing showcase code and angry about what equity had done, which would effectively have closed most of the theaters. So we had this meeting, and in the middle of the meeting, some asshole, sorry, <laughs> in, in the back row yells out, hey, Bob Moss, why don't you tell us how much money you made out of Kennedy's children? When somebody gives you a gift. Which is a play, not a reference to the Kennedy family. Thank you. So I sauntered to the microphone, slowly, because I had four aces, right? And I said, you know, I'm really sorry to tell you this. And I said, not only did Robert Patrick not give us cent, thank you very much, to playwrights arises that made his world, his world famous play, he never gave me a nickel, okay? I'm really sorry, we're not in the horse race business. And I spoke about that as a metaphor and people started cheering and that was the end of the meeting. Now, if they had asked one of the other people sitting on the panel, it might not have ended so happily, but they didn't. They asked me, which was a mistake, because I had the right answer and people knew, people knew me. So Don Grody said, can he speak? I said, absolutely. So he got up to speak and they booed him off the stage, so he couldn't speak. So Equity decided they would have a mass meeting. And at first they were going to do it in their offices, and they realized this is too big. So they then were going to rent the uh, labor union on 44th Street. They had a theater, but it was too small. So finally they got the Schuberts to give them the Imperial. And the way you got in was with your equity card. So the, the atmosphere was, it was thrilling. It was, I mean... But they wouldn't call on me. Of course, I raised my hand. They wouldn't call me. They, you know, they weren't crazy. So Maria Solario was an actress who'd worked a lot at playwrights. So she got a mic. And she said, I yield my turn to Robert Moss. And the whole room went crazy. It was very, it was very exciting. And the equity board was on the edge of the stage, just like the UBA board had been on the and I, I had it down, three minutes, fine, I can do it. I did it, and every, just pandemonium. And so Ruby D, who was an equity counsel, she said, I make a motion that we 
what is the word, postpone? No, I don't know. Put, away, put aside the current, and let's begin meetings with people from off-off-Broadway and make another at attempt. Based on that input, because was the, was the initial revision made really kind of without consulting the field? No, it didn't consult, consult anybody. They did it totally by themselves. So this was an amazing moment in the labor movement in America, or in the world, the first time labor voted down an adjustment made by management in favor of, no, they, they, they voted down the labor, the, the actors voted against their own, it seemed like against their management, against management, I'm not saying it well. Do you know what I mean? So we won that round, and then the New York Times called us all and a bunch of us to discuss this issue, and it was on the front page of the Times. But it was because of UBA that we were organized and that all of this happened. It wasn't random. We were very organized, and we were right. At that moment, at that moment, we were right. Hi, Audrey, with a point of clarification here. Art New York is not today a labor negotiating organization. The Off-Broadway League is. And despite the fact that we used to have a similar name and the fact that we have Off-Broadway companies, we're different orgs with very different places in the field's ecosystem. But we are all working towards the same goals. We want artists to be paid. And much of what we do at Art New York is educate and support our members in planning to do just that. As creatives in the field at that time, how did you see the field change as equity started to change some of their practices and as Off-Broadway off started to have a more unified voice and at least standing up for themselves? I certainly noticed that by 75, a second layer had gotten added to, um, to the founding layer of Genesis and La Mama and Justin Poets and Chinos, and that had and that obviously included playwrights and um, Manhattan Theater Club, and uh, I, you know, and then there was then there was kind of yet another layer like the WPA, who had been struggling theaters at the beginning of UBA, and you know, again, there was a lot of people getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But the point was, there were getting to be more places to go with your plays. There were so many more places to work at that point, but you still could not support yourself as a theater artist working at those theaters because, you know, although there may have been some compensation, theaters were getting stronger. The institutions themselves were getting stronger. They were paying something. The class of people who were managing those theaters and making those theaters possible were starting to get some sort of salary. God knows they weren't getting rich, but they were getting some sort of salary. And Steve, as somebody who was paying performers at the time, you see the field of, of your peers essentially picking up the same practices. We were paying people, but that might mean eight weeks of employment for an actor in a year or two years yeah. as far as Genesis was concerned. So I'm not so sure it's so different today. But the bottom line was there was the next generation, I think, found a way to, to make a living in New York. But at the same time, you know, the theater came back and audiences came back and people, people, I think people live in New York professionally in a way that they did not during the period, certainly that I was there up till 85. 
when people were still were when even more people were living on cardboard boxes on the street. I think something that is going to guide kind of the future as we look into the late 80s and going into the 90s in New York is something you referenced earlier with the early Uber founding companies was whether or not folks had personal money or a church supporting them. The sheer number of theater companies that were named after or housed within churches in the West Village and the East Village at the time. So space really becoming an issue. And of course, Bob, we've, we've spent plenty of time talking about 42nd Street and that flip over If you were maybe a company just starting out or anyone working on a smaller budget, where was there to rehearse and perform outside of 42nd Street? Since I represent the church community. Yes. You know, St. Mark's in the Bowery is the second oldest public building in New York City. And with no no endowment, those artists were brought in because the rector at that time thought in that era, in in the mid 60s, that artists were among the few people in society that were doing theology. And what's interesting today of those four original off-off-Broadway theaters, with the exception of Chino after Joe Chino died, uh, Judson, La Mama, and of course, Ellen was very smart. She kept buying property as much as she was supporting artists. And Genesis at St. Mark's, those three places are still arts venues. So it's interesting that 60 years later... These venues, and particularly, and a couple of churches in Brooklyn that have been doing this too, that have maintained a mission to the arts on some some basis. Exactly, and it's something that very much informed the um, the mission of Art New York beginning in 2000 is when we started to get this lovely space that we're in in the 30s on the West Side, <laughs> um, as well as the Brooklyn space and moving into Hell's Kitchen, and now Hudson Yards is becoming more and more every day a destination for folks. But looking back at that era for artists and what Art New York was becoming, because once we get into that time is when we start to see above 300 members of Art New York, most off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. And by the time we get to the 2000s, some Broadway at that point, as MTC purchased the Friedman Theater, um, we started to see Roundabout come up with a Broadway space. And now we have... Second stage with the Helen Hayes. I believe. So as we see that growth within the community, was there a unifying sense of community that you could trace specifically back to Art New York? I would say no. How so? I would say you were there when we needed you, but if we didn't need you, that was good. It's again an evolution of the more solid footing an institution becomes and the older people get, they stop becoming quite the same degree of a seeding organization and more of a, a, a realizing one. Steve, you're currently on the board of trustees for two of Art New York's member companies. Uh, I know. And you're on one too, Bob. I'm available. Barnett, you are on the other side of the country. You come back here. <laughs> so my question then is, what advice are you giving these companies that are heralding the next generation as someone who's an advisor for them? And do you encourage them to dig into their Art New York relationship? Well, Liam is certainly taking advantage of his relationship here. This is Liam Lonigan, Egg and Spoon Collective? Yes, he's fantastic. Naturally brilliant, yes. And he was my assistant at Syracuse Stage. That's what he had said, is that he he formed a relationship with you and didn't let go. When he graduated, I said, what do you want to do? He said, I think I want to run a theater. I said, then do it. 
And he said, well, where do I get the money? I said, why are you starting with a negative? That's a negative. Don't do that. Start your theater. Get people together. If you have a good idea, people will follow you. Yeah. And of the companies that you're advising? Well, um, I didn't really know the Mover Research was a member. Because Mover Research is a dance, you know, exploration sort of worldwide, but not a performing or presenting organization other than, uh, oddly enough, we still do free Monday night concerts of artists and residents at Judson Church, mm-hmm. even though we're now in the, the uh, participant in the PS122 school building. Um, Chocolate Factory, uh, which does both theater and dance, um, I persuaded them several years ago <laughs> that we became part of Arts Pool, mm-hmm. which I know you spun off, I guess. I mean, it's a totally independent. So they're now managing uh, the, the Chocolate Factory's finances. So that was, I mean, that was a good venture. For those who may be unfamiliar, Arts Pool was exactly that. Um, at the time, some of the staff at Art New York, who were a guy yard and specifically inclined towards finance, uh, realize that while there is an extent to which workshops can be offered to teach artists to do that administrative work, it's also not always the onus of the artist to take on administrative labor. Sometimes the art is what you do. Um, so offering up a service like Arts Pool that could be that higher on financial service um, has been beneficial for so many, especially mid to small size companies. And by that, I'm saying budgets under $500,000. I mean, that's all about advice to an individual, but, you know, and I'd be curious about what the services demands are of all those members you have. That's why I think it's not so much different than it was 40 years ago. It's not easy. I think you have to point people to places where you you can get a reading or you can begin to get engaged with a community. What's the demand? It's still about finance. It's still about space. And it's still about trying to navigate the legalities of putting on a show. It's just an assumption of you've learned how to create something in this industry, not how to move through the industry. And that is a big part of what Art New York does right now is just that community. And how do you address that? By providing funding and space. How do you provide We do. We regrant upwards of $3 million each year is I think what we're up to right now. Between funds from NISCA that we still work closely with, we have a micro-grant program. So if folks need to bring in an intimacy coordinator, a consultant of any kind working on anti-oppression, working on cultural awareness, just providing the grants to pay that person. And you're helping you're helping artists figure out how to get other people to give them money to do the crazy things that they dream of doing that are not necessarily going to, you know, make anybody else any money. So if we're looking at what the needs are, there's the funding. There's a space. And then there is a long-term game of how can we ensure that this field is stable, regardless of whether there's one organization that goes to bat every time and says, hey, we need better treatment. We need more funding. I have a closeout question um, for for the room because we're, we're kind of at a place now where we're talking about where we are, what we've done, and the future of theater when we talk about this funding. So... If you could say briefly, and and Barnett, I'll start with you. Um, What is something that excites you about where theater is going? I'm excited by the fact that we're recognizing theater as theater as opposed to as strict naturalistic representation. And therefore, the possibilities that 
many people can play many roles exist, okay? Which is the broadening of the casting, the broadening of representation in the theater. I think we're going through a struggling period. I don't think we have it figured out yet, but I think we're on a path that we weren't on for so many, many years. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's exciting and healthy. Steve, same question. It'll seem odd, but I've been around long enough that I think things go in cycles. And I think in the la- in what kind of excites me now is really what's happening in the off, off, off Broadway <laughs> arena. I mean, place like Target Margin and and then Brick and uh, all of these because I see a lot of work and and it's like what was happening in the late '60s and '70s. There are a lot of new artists and playwrights and people that are getting produced partly because of those those smaller venues or producing work on their own. And that tells me, um, we didn't get into this, but even though when you just said something, you know, one of the great virtues of theater genesis when I said we stopped producing is we didn't want to institutionalize the theater. And, but we were in a church that could continue supporting the arts and we just made a choice to, we'd already done enough. But now there are lots of things that came out of that. And lots of folks like to talk about who actually have a legacy that comes out of theater genesis. And I think that's going to happen again with the culture that's happening right now. There seems to be a lot of vibrancy. That's that's what kind of excites me, that there's another generation that's kind of feeling like they can do what you've all been talking about, do what they, they really want to do, you know. And that path towards success will look different for every company based on what they want. And that's why self-determination is so important at Art New York. Sure, some companies want to make sure they have a track toward Broadway. Some companies want to be around for 60 years and see a whole next generation of creative teams that work together. And some people just want to put on a show they love. And there should be room and resources for all of those to exist at the same time, in the same place, right here in New York. Bob. Founder of Uba, bring us home. <laughs> Gosh, it's so hard. Uh, I've been having this conversation with artistic directors lately. A number of theaters that I'm in conversation with are trying to figure out who they are and why their audiences are down. And they have to. And I said, I'm the wrong guy. I can't help you because you need young people who are not coming to the theater to come to the theater. And how are you going to get them there? I just think everybody's got to rethink it, think what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. And finding, if not a new audience, a younger audience. The important thing now is for everybody to really to be able to articulate why they're making theater. And if people can do that, if the artists who are running the theaters, and I mean artistic directors or the directors or however it's functioning, they have to really be clear about why they're doing it. And if they're not, then they shouldn't do it. You can't just do it because it doesn't work and it won't work. I just want to say thank you all three of you so much. As we know, this could continue to be its own independent series of just looking at the history specifically of how we got to where we are today in American theater, but we can continue that another time. For now, thank you guys so much for joining us. 
Yes, thanks for having us. I am sitting here with Audrey Rush, Art New York's Senior Manager of Individual Giving and Gifts. Special events. Special, Special events. events. Here's the thing. When you, when you handle a lot of aspects of, you know, community management and or communications, you just have a lot of words in your title. And I've come to accept that. Awesome. Individual giving and special events, which but, means I get to have a lot of fun. Yeah. But wouldn't you also say that special events is a type of gift? Like a type of gift? It's the gift from us to the community. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and so, so you wear many hats and you probably know, know this, but I've, I've sort of given you another one <laughs> as oh. like the unofficial historian of Art New York because you come up, you have all of these little gems of things in the past from Art New York. And <laughs> because it's so fun. Fun. There, I mean, uh, toot toot our own horn. Of course, like I, I'm a part of the Art New York community, and I've I've been here going on six years now. Woo. So not the entirety of our 50 year history, but there's so many fun factoids that, as somebody who majored in theater and loves dramaturgy, it's fun to see basically the history of American theater in yeah. the past 50 years. Yeah, I, and I love that, and you always share it with you know the staff here at Art New York so to be able to do this interview with the three founding members of or three of the founding members of UBA what was it like getting more context about how UBA came to be and what was going on with the off and off off Broadway at the time of the formation so what's really interesting is not only the process of talking to one of some of our founders but finding out who our founders were mm -hmm. uh, was a big national treasure moment. I very much felt like Nicolas Cage um, because pre-1988, really, we didn't have files handy as mm -hmm. far as who was on staff, who was on the board. Um, it's almost like we weren't using computers in the office at the time. <laughs> so prior to 1988, you have to do a lot of digging mm -hmm. using New York's public library system. So I actually went into the Morgan Library and found a hard piece of paper in the archives that was the attendance sheet for who was at one of the first meetings of UBA. That's amazing. It was, oh, it was absolutely this holy grail moment. I, I kid you not, Diane Kruger and whatever the other actor's name is were there with me as I uncovered this piece of history. So that was fun, finding out who people were um, in the first place. But the parallels between the founders of UBA and our current membership now, as far as what their struggles are, are so strikingly similar, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. especially since government-funded theater has a multi-thousand-year history, mm -hmm. so there's definitely precedent there, and yet still, both at the founding of UBA, now called Art New York, and currently, artists are in a position to annually, if not quarterly, have to advocate for their work like it doesn't have this massive impact on our shared mm -hmm. culture. So it was this um, this kind of heartfelt feeling of, of recognition mm -hmm. of, of the wants and the needs of the membership in 1972 to now. And yes, there's some frustration with, oh, you know, are we still fighting these same battles? But at the same time, it was a you know, we're true to the arts. Mm -hmm. We we are true to ourselves, and artists have had a lot of the same common wants and goals over mm -hmm. the years. That's awesome. And you mentioned, you know, national treasures, finding these national treasures, and 
Robert Moss brought what I thought could be a national treasure. <laughs> Can you share with our audience the trinket of history that Bob brought to not, the interview? <laughs> not even just trinket, trinkets. Right. <laughs> I have always been envious of people who could diligently maintain a journal of any kind. I think it's a great way to capture a more intimate personal view of history. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what Bob Moss was able to come into the interview and he had a little small leather booklet. He said, I found my calendar date from the first meeting I went to. Mm -hmm. He just whips it out and he circled it. Plus, I think afterwards was he was going into tech for a show that I studied in college. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, yep. yep. <laughs> the context of timing. But to be able to not only have the living testament in the form of that person there, mm -hmm. but items like journals and letters to friends, things like that mm -hmm. are it's it's folklore because it's it's this written down past shared history, but it was so nice to have that personal angle of it of like, you really were here, and after you're gone, this little booklet will live on too Aww. and prove that you were there. Uh, yeah, that, I, I loved seeing that. I was so happy you brought it in. In this episode, Steve talks about how theater genesis didn't want to quote unquote institutionalize. He said, we've done enough. Audrey, we would love your thoughts on this. That is one of the healthiest things I have heard a theater maker say, because it's it's so cog. There's such a cognizance of not only what he wanted to do with theater genesis, but also an ability to look around and say, if I don't feel like what we're doing is contributing to this field at large, then pull back and don't take up that space and don't take up those funds. Um, I also think that if a goal is as you said, quote unquote, institutionalization, you can fall into a trap of doing something just for the sake of this is what we're supposed to do. And that's where a lot of harm can happen is if you don't have a clear vision of why you're continuing on, of how you want to continue on, but still say, I need to press on for the sake of a quote unquote institution, that's how we got into the situation that both the theater industry and the, I mean, museum, museum industry, 2020 was a big moment of reckoning for folks when they said, you know, this institution is not serving the people that are working for it. So being able to say, that's not actually our goal. I don't think it is. I'm happy with what we've done and move on to something else, not necessarily stop altogether. It's just something else. And being able to healthfully say, we're closing the book on this. Uh, very recently, one of our members, City Company, mm -hmm. was incredibly vocal. They were transparent with their audiences and their artists about the decision that City Company had reached about ending its programming. Mm -hmm. They felt that they had reached a natural conclusion for what they wanted to do. And they said, okay, this is how we go about closing this, releasing the literal space we occupy and saying that we're going on to work on other things as individuals. And there's nothing healthier than that. And listeners, sneak peek. You'll be hearing from our lovely friends at City Company later on in this podcast. Um, we are so happy to have you as our first episode guest interviewer. Mm. And so the final question for today would be, what's going to haunt you from this interview? What's going to stay with you, you know, months, years down the line after talking to these fine folks of the Uba founders. So specifically with the work that these, these three men, Barnett, Bob, and, and Steve, 
the impact of what they did and what I was able to research as far as what plays were being produced. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve, Steve Facey was working with Sam Shepard, who is somebody that as a person who pursued a BA in theater, we spent a good amount of time studying Sam Shepard and mm-hmm. to get that context for this play that I did so many scenes for, I am speaking with the person who directed the first production of that and workshopped it with Sam Shepard. Um, and that's and that's with Steve. Barnett is the director behind what were my introduction, um, my introduction points to comedy via mm-hmm. sitcoms. Um, he was very much the shepherd of that. And of course, Bob Moss is founder of Playwrights Horizons. When I think about what my first introductions to quote unquote modern theater, contemporary theater were, um, they were shows that were originally produced at Playwrights Horizons. Mm-hmm. So having that kind of circle, full circle moment of meeting these folks and during the interview and in the process of getting to know them, being able to recognize so many characteristics of our current memberships, mm-hmm. membership in each of them, and realizing that somewhere among our membership in the past five years, the next big multi-million dollar off-Broadway house just got founded in somebody's living room. Mm. And one of our member companies just produced the first the first production of a playwright show who will go on to be a multi-Pulitzer winning writer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the future is now, it's happening at Art New York, and we have always been this crucible for new works coming out of New York and, and mm-hmm. kind of the, it's, it's the big pot you go to if you want to know what's coming next to the American canon of theater. So you listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit art-newyork.org to learn more about our many programs and offerings, including our very own What's Off podcast. Until next time. At Art New York, we empower our community to define their own vision for success and always keep an eye out for what's next. Our responsive resources, just like this podcast, illuminate truly innovative solutions to the toughest challenges facing our field. You can support the next wave of theatrical innovation by visiting our website at art-newyork.org slash donate to make a donation today. Thank you. What's Off is a production of Art New York. Executive producer, David E. Shane. Associate producer, Erica Ray Barnes. Line producers, Ashley J. Hicks and Nikki Maggio. With audio engineering by Catalina Media. Music.